0: Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I'm sorry, literally like two seconds before I I pressed record, (laughs) my domestic partner sent me a news item that is related to the one reality show that we watch regularly, which is Vanderpump Rules. Uh, by the way, if you hear the pitter patter of little feet in the background, that's that's my dog who's come to the Gore Lieberman studios with us today.
1: <laughs> yeah, Hugo's goes on third mic this episode. but I
0: can't I can't believe it. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm looking at this now. It's like I need to sit down. Tom Sandoval and Ariana Maddox call it quits allegations he cheated with co-star Raquel Levis. I don't know.
1: This is in the New York Times, I assume, you're reading this?
0: The New York Review of Books, actually. (laughs) There's a 5,000-word essay by George Packer about what it all means. (laughs) Uh, No, I mean, what can I say? I'm just very sad. I'm a huge fan of of Vanderpump Rules. And more than that, even more than that, I've been a huge fan of Tom Sandoval and Ariana Maddox's relationship. I mean, all the storm clouds that have uh, descended upon the friend group you know, all of the cheating left and right when Tom and Katie's marriage collapsed, which let's let's face it, we all saw that coming from a mile away. The chemistry was not there. That's Tom Schwartz, by the way, not Tom Sandoval. But but now I mean, I mean, God, we followed their their relationship the whole time we saw how Ariana rescued Tom from his go nowhere toxic relationship with Kristen pointed to a whole new direction. I don't know what I'm going to do, Luke. uh, What are we going to do, Luke? (laughs) What are we going to do? All
1: right, uh, stand by, folks. I think Will needs a minute.
0: All right, guys, I'm back. Ready to face a new day. So what's been on your mind, Luke? I mean, I was just at a protest for Scott Adams right now. Very relevant to the movie that we watched today about how uh, how the thought police are out to get you.
1: Yeah, let's let's clear the ground right away here. This is the 1984 episode. We're going to be talking about the film version of George Orwell's novel of the same name. In reading the essay that accompanies a film in the booklet that comes with the Criterion Edition, it's, it's a very good essay. I don't want to knock it. Um, but, there, but
0: you're going to knock well, it. <laughs> there was,
1: well, it, it exhibited a particular uh, tendency that I feel like has really irritated me over the last five or six years. I mean, really since 2016, a kind of hyper topical way of uh, engaging with almost any issue or object or conversation or subject of any kind.
0: Oh, you mean in the age of Trump, in the age of Brexit? Well, d- yeah,
1: well, exactly. So, I mean, did I tell you, uh, back when we did, I forget which episode, but it was on some kind of uh German film from the, the Weimar period, possibly Fritz Lang, something like that. And I remember that week, you know, I, I just found by searching on my podcast app, like a lecture about uh, Weimar Germany given by some expert, you know, at you know, Bard College or something. It's like, wow, like leading expert on Weimar Germany. And I start listening to it and the guy spends the first 50 minutes talking about you know how important this period is to study in the age of Trump and I turned it off I have no idea what that he said. was
0: kind of for like for six years in fact probably still now like that was your one weird trick to make anything relevant no matter what it was if you just just fed it into the trump machine there was your take
1: yeah and so you know similarly uh, this essay you know which is not a bad essay but it, it falls into this by the time you get to the you know last few paragraphs and you know you start getting the inevitable references to fake news news and brexit and that kind of thing and look i understand why people do this if you're tasked with you know presenting something like this as a writer obviously you want to try to make it relevant for people but it irks me because when you have a subject that's as interesting as george orwell's 1984 on hand i, I just don't think it's necessary and it feels i don't know very trivializing to kind of just introduce all of these little kind of topical you know oh, uh in the age of brexit with its you know manipulation of language and things and of course right uh,
0: um uh, <laughs> alternative facts have you ever heard of those <laughs> right right little thing called fake news
1: so i found out this week that sales of 1984 absolutely skyrocketed after trump's election they skyrocketed again after the alternative facts incident well, Specifically, uh, i mean
0: i i have to come clean here uh you want to know what year i read 1984 uh, it was 2017 <laughs> that was the year <laughs> But the other thing is that, of
1: course, right-wing people do this as well in their own way, and we're going to engage with this uh, a little more substantively later in the conversation. Well,
0: yeah, I was just about to say it's like, why focus on Brexit and your essay when actually what 1984 predicted was uh, uh, the woke mafia, cancel culture. Right. It, it predicted my damn grandkids <laughs> who are who are changing their pronouns, just like how Eurasia used to be at war with Oceania, <laughs> but now Oceania has never been at war with East Asia.
1: George Orwell And in particular, the novel 1984 have become just sort of these floating signifiers among like the the dumbest parts of the post-MAGA right broad enough that you can now shoehorn like any right wing grievance imaginable into them. So like just to give you an example, on January 6th, uh, you know, the January 6th, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted... Uh, We are living in Orwell's 1984. Free speech no longer exists in America. It died with big tech and what's left is only there for chosen few. So that was after Twitter suspended at real Donald Trump. Josh Hawley, after his uh, contract was rescinded or or canceled by Simon and Schuster, he invoked 1984. He talked about, yeah, you know, it's an example of, quote, the left looking to cancel everyone they don't approve of. So you find this kind of thing all over the place. The way the right, you know, thinks about the left you know as as my late friend Michael Brooks used to say the left historicizes and the right mythologizes and so the right is perfectly happy to just kind of construct and work with a caricature of the left and, you know, I've experienced this myself going to right wing, you know, gatherings, conferences and the like. There's really little to no interest at all, at least that that I've seen. I mean, honestly, even minimal interest among people who are ostensibly serious conservative intellectuals in trying to understand what the left is, in understanding its theoretical underpinnings, in understanding that, you know, it's, it's like the right. Like the right is very sectarian. It's very fractured. And right wing people understand this. They're very aware of all of the different factions that exist within their own tent. And for some reason, when it comes to understanding their adversaries, we've drawn endless joy from this uh, on the show. Bernie
0: Sanders and Barack Obama and Karl Marx are all the same person.
1: Right. Right. And like, yeah, did you know that Barack Obama, like, yeah, like studied with Saul Alinsky or whatever the take is. It's all the same thing. Like the past 250 years of history or however far back you want to go are just the forces of liberty, individualism and, you know, patriotic righteousness and Christian virtue standing in opposition to the stifling, uh, homogenizing, collectivist impulses of the left, which is represented from everybody, uh, from your like most generic blue state democratic machine politician who gets money from Wall Street to like, yeah, I don't know, the CPUSA in the 50s or something.
0: Okay, so the right has claimed George Orwell, and I'm sure that we'll have listeners who are able to point to like many things that Orwell said or that can be interpreted this way and that way. Um, I'm, I'm not an expert in Orwell, but I do know know. know that there's like a streak that runs through his work of a kind of distrust that people can be persuaded by righteousness like they're they're easily persuaded by like bloodthirstiness and by nationalism and you know it's it's easy to rally people in you know xenophobia uh, but it's less easy to rally them in the name of peace that's something that george orwell wrote about fairly regularly That's something, by the way, that I want to get back to when we talk about the 1984 movie, because that is basically the one thing that, in both the book and the film, the dystopian society offers its populace, the ability to be on a side and to hate the other side. But the other thing that I would always hear about Orwell, you know, the thing that I, growing up, you know, when I was frickin' nine years old that I would hear about Orwell is that, oh, Animal Farm is about communism. And it's about how movements like communism that are supposed to be egalitarian end up as fascist as any movement that brands itself fascist.
1: Yeah, so I'm glad you brought up Animal Farm, actually, because as I recently discovered, the most popular film version of Animal Farm, at least for several decades in the English-speaking world, uh, came out in 1954, just a few years after Orwell's death. It is a substantially revised take on the story. You know, Snowball, who's the sort of Leon Trotsky surrogate character, a lot of plot and dialogue that makes him sympathetic is is taken out. Uh, Old Major, who's a sort of fusion of Lenin and and Karl Marx, uh, he's made to be like just this dim-witted brute. And the whole story is not uh, about a revolution betrayed, it's about how revolution is bad. Uh, Anyway, that that film was financed by the CIA, I mean, literally. And it's just one example among many that I think demonstrates the very complex entanglement of George Orwell's writing, but also the reception to his writing in the politics of the Cold War. Uh, It's one of the reasons, I think, why you see his legacy kind of so contested today. And it's one of the things that has, I think, enabled the right to try to claim him and to try to claim 1984. You know, I mean, when the CIA is literally taking Animal Farm and being like, okay, we can just like slightly rewrite this and make it into Cold War propaganda, you know.
0: So why don't we get into the movie 1984, directed by Michael Radford, starring John Hurt as Winston Smith.
1: The world we are preparing, Winston... It's a constant victory, a constant triumph.
0: You are beginning to accept it, you will soon welcome it, and finally become part of it. In 1949, George Orwell had a vision of the future. Today, that vision is still a best selling novel, and his prophecy remains as terrifying as ever. If you want a vision of the future, Winston, imagine boot stamping on a human face forever. A future where freedom becomes slavery, where privacy is forbidden, the past forgotten, and where living people simply vanish, yet one man and one woman dare love i had never seen it before luke and i just watched it i've been kind of sitting with my reaction to it for an hour or so now and i have to say i think i was a little disappointed by it i think you like it more than i do and maybe we can uh maybe we can hash this over and uh, uh figure out who's correct well we all know who's correct it's it's the party <laughs> and that's me <laughs> But, but then I have to believe it, is the point, right? <laughs> I couldn't watch it without thinking of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which is a less coherent statement than Orwell's book is. It's I think we, we talked about it on the podcast years ago, and I think settled on the idea that Brazil was basically like a terrain. It was this soup of different things that were getting Terry Gilliam's goat at that time.
1: But I mean, there are certainly some similarities between it and 1984, in that, albeit in a much more kind of burlesque, comedic way, it it is about a future where, for whatever reason, life has just become very regimented and bureaucratized. And I guess the difference between it and 1984 is that because even though there is a sort of ruling uh, executive, a sort of inner party at the top that's contrived it all and is kind of um, pulling the strings, what it conveys more than anything else is just the sort of mundanity and banality of this. There's not a lot of ideological fervor, at least for the people that are living in it.
0: Bureaucracy itself is the enemy in Brazil and there's actually no animating ideology to the bureaucracy. What has been erected is this kind of soulless consumer society where people are going to fancy dinners and having plastic surgery and the middle class do their sort of dead-end jobs. It's, it's a heightened version of Thatcher's England, um, except that there's no Thatcher.
1: But in a way, you know, I mean, because it is a terrain, you could have a conservative reading of the film. You could interpret it, in fact, as a almost Thatcherite parody of, you know, it's like the Thatcherite idea, of where things will be in 20 years if you keep electing labor governments or something like that. Although what you just said actually made me think that 1984 is in some ways more similar to Brazil than I'd realized, because if I have a fundamental criticism of 1984 and its portrait of totalitarianism, and I think it speaks to potentially a wider issue in George Orwell, you know, I actually do think that 1984, its fundamental limitation and where its portrait of totalitarianism doesn't quite work for me is that at the end of the day, it is a tyranny that is very diaphanous. And even though we're shown a lot of ideological fervor uh, in the form of these, you know, ritualized public shamings of dissidents who may or may not exist or traitors who may or may not exist, or even if they do uh, exist as people have backstories that are contrived to make them less sympathetic. Like at the end of the film, when we're shown Winston's confession, he's talking about like betraying his family. And it's like, we know Winston hasn't had a family since he was a kid. So you see all of that stuff. The problem for me is it isn't ultimately clear what is motivating the party beyond a very rudimentary desire for social control as an end in itself
0: also in brazil jonathan price is on the same treadmill that we're all on you know he's a salary man he has a little box in the sky that he calls his home and he hopes to eventually uh, get to the point of being you know upper middle class as opposed to being middle class he hopes to rise through the ranks of whatever soulless company that he works in he has freedom in his little box and he hopes to expand that freedom that it'll be in a little house And that's kind of the deal that we get in this society that we have now. And it's one of the things that keeps our society running. I mean, another movie that I inevitably thought of that's very derivative of 1984 is V for Vendetta. Right, right. Which, by the way, casts John Hurt in the role of the Big Brother character. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. A little wink at the audience. And, you know, one criticism that I remember we had of that movie was that it didn't give a great sense of, like, what the popular base of this party was. But one thing that it conveys well is that when fascism takes over— I mean, as long as the garbage keeps being collected, and as long as, you know, the taps are running, and a lot of people maintain a sort of basic middle-class lifestyle, people will just put up with it. And central to Orwell's thesis is the idea that if the state maintains enough control, it can shape reality to its will. It can shape our reality to its will. But, you know, watching this movie, I started to think maybe Orwell overplayed his hand a little bit, because in this universe, they're outlawing sex, okay? They're outlawing the most basic emotions. And I feel like any Any totalitarian society that has actually been successful hasn't gone that far. Like, society needs to have some release valves.
1: Well, the release valves are the public shamings and, and things like that.
0: I guess so, but I'm not entirely sure that I buy that that's enough.
1: Okay, well, there is something really important to note here about the world of 1984, which is that it takes place almost entirely in the world of the party, right? The Society of Oceania, in which the story takes place, it's not all like this. Winston Smith is a member of the party. He's not a member of the inner party. He's part of the larger group of people who are sort of, you know, technicians and and processors, you know, he's he's uh, very much like the character in Brazil in terms of his uh, class location, if you want to put it like that. But in 1984, and this is something that I actually think makes it, uh, more, again, more similar to Brazil than I realized, there's the whole world of the proles, which is outside of, you know, the party isn't surveying the proles with its telescreens, at least not in the same way. They have a much freer existence. Uh, and one of the things that Orwell communicates, it's, it, you see more of it in the novel than you do in the film, although there's a famous scene in 1984 that is recreated. In the film, where there's a a prol woman and she's singing a song that Winston's very moved by, while she's doing her her launch, you know, she's hanging her laundry in her back garden or something. And in the world of 1984, the party actually manufactures culture by sort of analog computer, you know, prose, even pornography, and also music. And, you know, the line in the movie, which I think is the same as Winston's line in the book is, you know, how can she make something that, you know, was written by a machine sound so beautiful? So in 1984, there is still a majority of society that is not living under this kind of level of repression. And social control is just exerted over them in a kind of softer way, you know, by means of soft power, Like through trash culture and like, you know, deliberately keeping people, you know, undereducated, you know, even as the party's official announcements are bragging about rising literacy rates and things like that. But I think that's a really important detail about the world of 1984 that I think in the film is kind of uh, easy to miss. I feel like it doesn't really convey that element of the story as much as it could. And it also deals with the Goldstein manuscript, which is in many ways, I think, the most important part of the book. It's kind of a standalone thing in some ways. Obviously, very difficult to treat something like that, which is 15 or 20 pages long in a film. But if you want to talk about 1984's conception of totalitarianism, it's impossible to do so without discussing the Goldstein Manuscript in detail. Well, the Goldstein Manuscript, by the way, for those who haven't uh, read the book, is a fictional treatise. Now, it's fictional in two important senses. It's fictional in the sense that Orwell wrote it, right, and it's part of a a novel, but it's also potentially uh, fictional even in the world of 1984. Its status is never really resolved. It's colloquially the Goldstein manuscript, but it's actually called The Theory and Practice of Oligarchical Collectivism. It's penned or ostensibly penned, it's attributed to anyway, Emmanuel Goldstein, who is supposedly the leader of a resistance movement and is one of the main sort of antagonists that the party holds up at these, you know, daily hates in order to maintain cohesion and fervor among its partisans. Winston doesn't read all of it. He only reads the first few chapters before he and Julia are arrested by the party. And later when Winston is being tortured by the enigmatic inner party official O'Brien, who in the film is actually played by Richard Burton in his final uh, screen role before he passed away. O'Brien claims to have actually written the Goldstein manuscript or, you know, as he as he puts it, uh, I wrote it. That is to say I collaborated in writing it. No book is produced individually as you know. Winston asks, is it true what it says? And O'Brien replies, is description? Yes. The program it sets forth is nonsense. So there's a lot of ambiguity here. There are a lot of questions you can ask, you know, just at the level of kind of uh, literary interpretation as to what the status of the Goldstein manuscript is. And there's no correct answer. You know, is Emmanuel Goldstein a real person? Has there been some kind of revolution that's gone awry or been, you know, hijacked in Oceania? Is Emmanuel Goldstein, you know, a Leon Trotsky? Is, is the theory and practice of oligarchical collectivism, you know, the revolution betrayed, uh, the book that Trotsky wrote? Can anything in the manuscript be Taken seriously. It details the whole history of how this world came about. We learn that there was some kind of nuclear war between great powers and that the world is divided up into various superstates, all of which practices a different totalitarian ideology, or rather legitimizes itself on the back of a different ideology, but all of them are functionally the same. So one of them is called death worship. Another one is called Neo-Bolshevism. The ruling ideology of Oceania is Ingsoc, which stands for English Socialism. It seems that all of these regimes have come about, you know, in this climate of, uh, you know, chaos and and destruction and anarchy that's followed a kind of third world war. They've come about basically because a bunch of uh, sort of middle and upper middle class kind of technocrats have gotten together. In the manuscript, it describes them as, you know, less motivated by avarice and greed and luxury than ruling castes of, you know, previous epochs in history. These are people for whom social control is a kind of uh, end in itself. We learn various other things in the manuscript. You know, we learn about how the party maintains discipline and order. We learn about its attitude towards language. You know, we learn uh, in detail about its project, which is kind of depicted nicely in the film, I thought, to constantly revise the dictionary. So every year there's, or, you know, every edition of the dictionary has fewer and
0: fewer words in it.
1: Because words
0: create reality, and you can limit reality if you have fewer words.
1: Now, all of these things we learn in the manuscript, right, their status is completely unclear because we don't know if the account of the Goldstein manuscript is real. I mean, O'Brien says that in description it's true, but the program it sets forth is nonsense. What were O'Brien's real motivations in giving the text to to Winston? Is it simply, you know, is this how the inner party identifies potential dissidents by giving them this text? You know, and if so, you got to think, well, surely there's like an easier way to do this than by like writing a whole philosophical treatise Notwithstanding all of that, the Goldstein manuscript is I think, very important for, for two reasons. One is that I think the ambiguity surrounding its authenticity is very much the point, right? Anyway, you know, it's a literary device. Orwell is trying to create a world where Objective reality is never settled. It's never clear. And, you know, the only choice for Winston at the end of the book in in 1984's famous final passage is to just, you know, surrender his sense of objective reality to the party, right? Two plus two equals five or maybe three if the party says so. Is the party at war with Oceania or Eurasia? It can change whenever the party says so. And whatever it says has always been the case. In the same way, the Goldstein Manuscript's Providence is never resolved because Orwell doesn't want it to be resolved. You as the reader, at the end of the book, are not really sure whether any of this is real. There's one scene in the film where, uh, you know, Winston is walking through kind of a bombed-out street, and, uh, you know, the city is actually attacked. You know, there's like a bombing of some kind. Is Oceania even really at war with these other powers? Maybe there's actually a free world outside of it, and maybe it's actually not like a continent-sprawling superstate. Maybe it really is just like Britain. Fuck, maybe it's not even Britain. Maybe it's just like the south of England, like the Tory shires have gone fascist or whatever. The second reason I think the Goldstein manuscript is important is that I think it can also be read as a kind of standalone statement, if a kind of satirical one on totalitarianism. And in that sense, it's very interesting in talking about Orwell's contested reputation, where should he be situated ideologically, all that kind of thing, who gets to claim him. I think the Goldstein manuscript you know, is pretty emblematic because it gives you fodder for all kinds of different interpretations. From a certain point of view, it's a backstory about a sort of counter-revolution by middle-class technocrats who figured out that you can basically reduce politics to the level of technology. On the other hand, you can read it as, you know, much of the right has, as just a parable about, like, where the left wants to take us all
0: well i have to say uh, i liked in the movie how the screenplay reduces the goldstein manifesto to like two sentences <laughs> that john hertz winston smith is reading in bed i think he says uh interesting the object of war is to keep society structure intact and a uh, war is really waged by society on its subjects i thought that was very useful and helpful <laughs> because i look i like the goldstein manifesto as a piece of writing but you know it's funny Um, In all my years of remembering 1984, I remembered nothing from the Goldstein Manifesto. What I actually remembered was everything leading up to it and everything after. I've always felt that, you know, what you really need to know about the ideas that Orwell is trying to express comes in what the Richard Burton character says to Winston Smith while he's torturing him. The idea that if you remove all evidence of a thing that you saw, let's say you you had a sibling and you removed every photo, you took away any piece of documentation, who's to say that that sibling actually existed? as mentioned before, the idea that like they're taking words out of the dictionary, limiting the number of words, because words are the ways that thoughts express themselves. And if you take away the words, you can't have the thoughts, you know, those are the really powerful ideas. And I don't know, when I when I read the Goldstein Manifesto, it feels like deep lore to me. It's great to find out how the society started. But I mean, I'm reading it, and I'm thinking, Oh, my God, like, can we get back to the story? That's my overwhelming feeling. It feels like this essay outline deep lore that comes in the middle of a story that otherwise I think expresses the main ideas very elegantly.
1: Well, that makes sense to me uh, if we're treating 1984 strictly as a novel. But I mean, I think that its influence and legacy is that it's not just a novel. And I think certainly, and I think the reason people have kind of been able to treat it as something uh, more than just a novel, and you know, in some cases, as, as a work of sort of political theory, even, uh, is because of the presence of the Goldstein manuscript, which, you know, as I said, I think does work as a sort of standalone commentary, albeit a very uh, ambiguous one.
0: I agree it works as a Standalone commentary for sure. I I just don't like it in the context of the novel. <laughs>
1: i This might speak to uh, just a, a difference in sensibility and Probably. taste between the two of us yeah. anyway. Which I think I like lore a lot more than you do.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, but um, it's not like you can divorce the political theory from the aesthetics of it. You know, the the, the political theory is what animates the whole book. Um, I I guess what can I say? I think they go down with a spoonful of sugar a little more easily when they're like characters saying them in a story. <laughs>
1: I like that we're talking about 1984 and you're expressing your desire, you know, like a member of the inner party in the film. You're (laughs) like, ah, the new edition will have even fewer words. There will be no Goldstein manuscript. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, hey, what can I say? It's a classic and people love it. So uh, we we can keep the manuscript in. If you're a man, you're the last man. Your kind is extinct. We are the inheritors. Do you understand that you're alone?
1: I want to return to a point I I introduced earlier about the limitations of uh, 1984's conception of totalitarianism, and here I want to turn to an essay I found from 1955 by the Polish Marxist writer and historian Isaac Ducher. He's more critical of the book than I am, and there are obvious historical reasons for that. I ultimately depart from what I think is the uh, portrayal of totalitarianism in 1984, in that for me, I don't think you can separate authoritarianism of any kind from some kind of ideological project. To me, 1984 only makes sense, and you know there is enough ambiguity, uh, you know, in the story and in the novel that I think you know perhaps you could project this onto it. It only makes sense if actually behind this all, the party does. have have some kind of motivation. But Isaac Deutscher recognized this exact problem and I think articulated it very well. He writes, In 1984, man's mastery over the machine has reached so high a level that society is in a position to produce plenty for everybody and put an end to inequality. The poverty and inequality are maintained only to satisfy the sadistic urges of Big Brother. Yet we do not even know whether Big Brother really exists. He may only be a myth. It is the collective cruelty of the party, not necessarily of its individual members who may be intelligent well meaning people that torments oceania totalitarian society is ruled by a disembodied sadism. Orwell imagined that he had transcended the familiar and as he thought increasingly irrelevant concepts of social class and class interest i 'm not entirely sure if I, I share that particular part of uh, deutscher 's analysis, but I think he 's onto to something here. But in these Marxist generalizations, the interest of a social class bears at least some specific relation to the individual interests and the social position of its members, even if the class interest does not represent a simple sum of the individual interests. In Orwell's party, the whole bears no relation to the parts. The party is not a social body, actuated by any interest or purpose. It is a phantom-like emanation of all that is foul in human nature. It is the metaphysical, mad and triumphant ghost of evil." Now I certainly think Deutscher was on to something there particularly you know for thinking about the Goldstein manuscript because the prehistory it gives to the totalitarian society of the book is one in which the ascendant uh you know ruling caste of uh, of Oceania and the other societies like it has not really been motivated by individual self-interest or you know not really and they haven't even really been motivated by ideology it seems it seems like ideology is really epiphenomenal of some kind of deeper desire some kind of more rudimentary desire for social control which is something that Orwell himself may have you know believed was present in the mid-20th century. You know, Orwell really did think that there were authoritarian currents just kind of coursing through the intelligentsia in Britain and in, and in Europe more generally, and he saw those as being very bound up with both Stalinism and fascism. And here I'd just like to read what for me is one of the most important passages in the Goldstein Manuscript. The idea of an earthly paradise in which men should live together in a state of brotherhood without laws and without brute labor had haunted the human imagination for thousands of years. And this vision had had a certain hold even on the groups who actually profited from each historic change. The heirs of the French, English, and American revolutions had partly believed in their own phrases about the rights of man, freedom of speech, equality before the law, and the like, and it even allowed their conduct to be influenced by them to some extent. But By the fourth decade of the 20th century, all the main currents of political thought were authoritarian. The earthly paradise had been discredited at exactly the moment when it became realizable. Every new political theory, by whatever name it called itself, led back to hierarchy and regimentation. And in the general hardening of outlook that set in round about 1930, practices which had long been abandoned, in some cases for hundreds of years, imprisonment without trial, the use of war prisoners as slaves, public executions... Torture to extract confessions, the use of hostages and the deportation of whole populations, not only became common again, but were tolerated and even defended by people who considered themselves enlightened and progressive. It was only after a decade of national wars, civil wars, revolutions, and counter revolutions in all parts of the world that Ingsoc and its rivals emerged as fully worked out political theories. But they had been foreshadowed by the various systems, generally called totalitarian, which appeared earlier in the century, and the main outlines of the world which would emerge from the prevailing chaos had long been obvious. What kind of people would control this world had been equally obvious. The new aristocracy was made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and professional politicians. These people, whose origins lay in the salaried middle class and the upper grades of the working class, had been shaped and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. As compared with their opposite numbers in past ages... They were less avaricious, less tempted by luxury, hungrier for pure power, and above all, more conscious of what they were doing and more intent on crushing opposition. This last difference was cardinal. By comparison with that existing today, all the tyrannies of the past were half-hearted and inefficient. The ruling groups were always infected to some extent by liberal ideas and were content to leave loose ends everywhere, to regard only the overt act and to be uninterested in what their subjects were thinking." Even the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages was tolerant by modern standards. Part of the reason for this was that in the past, no government had the power to keep its citizens under constant surveillance. The invention of print, however, made it easier to manipulate public opinion, and the film and radio carried the process further. With the development of television and the technical advance which made it possible to receive and transmit simultaneously on the same instrument, private life came to an end. Every citizen or at least every citizen important enough to be worth watching could be kept for 24 hours a day under the eyes of the police and in the sound of official propaganda with all other channels of communication closed. The possibility of enforcing not only complete obedience to the will of the state but complete uniformity of opinion on all subjects now existed for the first time. Now, I think all of that is really wonderfully said. It's wonderfully written and and, and rendered. But again, I just reiterate, this is kind of where the conception of totalitarianism in the novel hits a wall for me. It's not clear that the people who've brought this world about, uh, this society about, are motivated by self-interest at all, in either the individual sense of, you know, being just greedy and wanting things and wanting to be at the top of a hierarchy, or in a kind of like collective or class sense of wanting to be the ruling caste and, and, you know, wielding technology and power and, and politics to that end. This is one of the things that makes 1984 and the Goldstein manuscript in particular so ambiguous And it's one of the things, anyway, that I think has lent the novel to so many different interpretations, you know, some of which come from the left and some of which come from the right.
0: The Richard Burton character says, and you know, it's one of the famous quotes from the book, that man is infinitely malleable. And I think that's something that scares Orwell very much. I don't think Orwell trusts mankind. He doesn't trust that our better angels will win out. Something else that the Richard Burton character says is that man can't be allowed to act collectively in this society because, you know, individually they betray, they distrust, they spread disease, but collectively they can work together, they can overthrow society. But that collective action can work in a number of different directions. In the movie and the book we see the rulers of the society creating this fascist collective, you know, we see these great crowd scenes of all these party members cheering for their party and, you know, booing the villains. And to the extent that this party has an ideology, I feel like it's one that could tempt Orwell. It's the idea that order must be maintained. The rulers have figured out people cannot be trusted. So therefore, they must be controlled for the good of society. If there's an ideology that's animating the society, I think that's what it is. That's why Orwell thinks that this is a plausible dystopia, because I think there's some small part of him that thinks maybe it's a necessary dystopia. Well, I
1: both agree and disagree with that. I mean, I I would, I think, gesture at what is in some ways the most hopeful statement of 1984, which is, of course, when Winston says, if there is hope, it lies with the proles. I think Orwell is somebody who, at least in terms of his own uh, political identity and identity as a writer, trusted the common man as, as he saw it, Uh, more than he trusted most intellectuals and the intelligentsia. This is one of the things that makes Orwell so compelling as a writer. But again, to go back to the point that uh, Isaac Deutscher articulated so well, I think this is also one of the kind of wider limitations of his work, because he's so adverse to kind of abstract theorization. For him, it's just, it's irredeemably bound up in, you know, the, the twin horrors of Stalinism and Nazi Germany that, you know, he writes a book like 1984 and, and ultimately, what is the foundation of this dystopian society? It's just a kind of diaphanous, you know, phantom-like impulse for social control that's not rooted in class interest as like a Marxist would understand or individual self-interest as maybe a classical liberal would understand. It's this particular feature of Orwell that I think, you know, makes him so compelling and endlessly fascinating. You know, it animates a lot of his writing. It runs through a lot of his writing, his nonfiction as well, in some ways more strongly, I would say. But it's one of the limitations for me of something like the Goldstein manuscript and The World of 1984, if we're treating it not simply as a novel, but as kind of a a grander statement on, uh, on totalitarianism. Now, inevitably, you know, we set out to talk about the movie, and we've, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about the movie in conjunction with the text, and I think that's fine. But you said off the top, you think you enjoyed the film less than I did, and I'm interested in, to get into that a bit.
0: Well, I was surprised at what a kind of straightforward adaptation it was of the book. It well, is, see, this is what
1: I like about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it adopts this very muted style. I was frankly much more conscious of how difficult this society would be to maintain, uh you know, this completely colorless, flavorless, emotionless society, um how hard that would be to maintain when like it looks this bad. I felt Radford could have perhaps done a better job creating a dichotomy between, you know, the cold, sterile party society and that beautiful forest meadow where Winston is able to escape briefly or the or, or the little romantic apartment he and Julia are able to hold together. I, I feel like those scenes maintain the same sort of downbeat, somber tone as the rest of the movie, even though in the book... They feel like these, you know, doomed, inevitably doomed, but but nevertheless vital little patches of happiness amidst all the gray. I also feel there's, and perhaps you'll disagree, but I feel that there's a, a noticeable lack of suspense and tension throughout the movie. It maintains this, yeah, very consistent, somber tone. There's very little suspense, I felt, in those scenes with Julia, as well as the last act, you know, where he's being tortured by Richard Burton. It has such force in the book, and it felt like such a slog to me watching the movie.
1: Is that maybe just... Partly because you already knew the story. Like if you hadn't known the story, would that have been the case? Um, Potentially. Because I remember my first experience reading the novel when I was, I don't know, 15 or 16. And I remember, yeah, like it having just a ton of suspense because I wanted to know what was going to happen next.
0: I think the last act would have hit me a little bit more if John Hurt and Susanna Hamilton were, were kind of allowed to bring more different kinds of shades to their performances. Like I say, in those scenes where they're together, they maintain the same sort of affect that they do in the other scenes and i think being able to see a different kind of personality, more humanity in them in those scenes could have potentially made it hit harder when the remaining humanity is beaten out of him in the last act. I think the other reason why I bring up Terry Gilliam's Brazil is, you know, for all his faults as a filmmaker and a thinker, his best films have this remarkable tapestry of emotion. I'm not sure if he's a filmmaker who would have quite the deft hand to do an adaptation of 1984 exactly, but there's something very kind of staid and well mannered about the style that Radford brings that I eventually found a bit oppressive.
1: Well, I'd certainly agree it's oppressive. I mean, the film is very kind of bleak and, and claustrophobic and I mean I see what you mean about sort of the the tonal uniformity of it I think I largely agree with that if you and I had different you know if, if, if we received the film differently I think it may simply uh, you know we, we don't need to intellectualize it too much I think it may simply come down to you know what we were saying before about like I think I like lore more than you do because for me uh, you know this was my second time seeing the movie in many years since my first viewing but, you know, it, it's, it struck me that, you know, if you were sitting down to adapt 1984, I mean, you actually would have to do a lot of thinking about like, okay, what does this look like? The, the film makes a very conscious decision not to root its aesthetic in the 1980s. I mean, it very much is a kind of mid-century aesthetic. The London we see or, you know, the metropole we see that's presumably, you know, the, the city formerly known as London uh, on Airstrip One, you know, it's clearly modeled on the London of the Blitz. And I liked that because for me, you know, another thing that limits 1984's, you know, usefulness, at least as a kind of, um, well, as a prescriptive document or as a work of political theory is that it's so rooted in the mid 20th century, um, which is perhaps another reason why I really hate all the sort of like topical references to it that are just made constantly today. I like that the film understands that, and it wants to aesthetically situate the story historically, if that makes any sense. Because, you know, we discovered, I didn't know this, but uh, and it didn't make much of a difference, frankly, but there are two scores to this film. It's not a wholly different soundtrack, I guess it's just they recorded two scores at the time the film was made, one of which is a sort of conventional, classical score.
0: By one Dominic Muldowney.
1: Right, and then the other is by the Eurythmics. And so, you know, when we started the movie, we were like, hell, Let's go with the rhythmics and see what that's like. I mean, I definitely hadn't uh, hadn't seen that before. We didn't notice it until, like, the very end of the movie. I think it's only in a few select bits. But think about, like, imagine if instead of just having the Arrhythmics do one score, imagine if the whole film had uh, tried to kind of update the story. I believe there is a a TV version. I can't remember from which decade where it's set in the United States, which, you know, could be interesting. I'm not saying that 1984 is so sacrosanct or something that you can't update it. Uh, I once saw a a stage play version of Animal Farm, in the UK, actually, in Bath, that made significant changes to the aesthetic of Animal Farm, but really conveyed the story quite authentically, nonetheless. 1984, I think that's potentially harder to do because it's not a fable. It's, you know, uh, or, you know it's a, if it is a fable, it's one with very kind of deep lore, uh, which you have to adapt. And so I like that the film did not even try to, uh, you know, it's made in 1984, and there's no conception of, like, computers or anything like that. It's all just vacuum tubes and, and th- things exactly. of that kind.
0: So what if it went that, like, like gilliam route of collecting a lot of different aesthetics from a lot of different eras you know the way that in his movies you know there will be people dressed like it's the 1940s and they'll have tvs from the 50s and then other people will be dressed like it's the 80s or something and there will be like music video aesthetics here and there like do you think that had that sort of approach been taken it would have robbed the story of some like fundamental integrity
1: i think in the right hands that could be very interesting i think it'd be very difficult to pull off i think it's okay for for there to be multiple versions of things. But I do do want to live in a world where we have this film adaptation of 1984 as a baseline starting point, because I think it is a very authentic rendering of something, which in important ways is kind of historically specific. The idea that you're mentioning in Gilliam, where it's kind of this, you know, overly bureaucratized, but also very postmodern dystopia, where, yeah, it's just aesthetics drawn from different decades, everything kind of decontextualized, it would be very interesting to see a version of 1984 that attempted that. I just think it could go uh, it could go awry very easily. You know, something that does do that very well is Children of Men, which we've never we've never formally discussed on the podcast. But I mean, there's that incredible scene uh, near the beginning of the film where Theo, the Clive Owen character, visits the Battersea Power Station, and the Battersea Power Station is some kind of facility that seems to be both public and private. This is written about, of course, beautifully by Mark Fisher uh, at the beginning. of of uh, his seminal essay, Capitalist Realism. But there he visits the home of this sort of private collector who may also be a state official, it's not clear, and, you know, outside the window, in a different place than it appears on the cover of the of Pink Floyd album Animals, you know, is is the pig, uh, the floating pig, the famous floating pig. He's got all kinds of art, you know, he's got like original Da Vinci, there's Picasso's Guernica behind them as they're, uh, you know, having dinner and there's like a Handel aria playing. But because all of it is sort of historically, you know, decontextualized and, you know, desacralized, I think is the word Fisher uses, it's kind of deliberately robbed of its potency. There's something really deeply disturbing
0: art doesn't exist in a vacuum yeah you know know what this reminded me of did you ever see that movie equilibrium the one with Christian Bale, that's like in kind of a 1984 future society where emotion is illegal. It's I have not
1: seen this. My my, my brain, brain was working for a second to uh, make what you were saying about the also e-film starring Matt Damon that I'm now forgetting. Oh, um, Elysium. Elysium. So no, what's Equilibrium?
0: I'm surprised that no one in your high school, like, you know, some something that precocious teenagers
1: of a certain variety liked?
0: I don't know if they were precocious. It was the movie that introduced Gun Kata to of the world, which is a kind of martial arts that has guns. <laughs> Uh, but it's set in a future society where, yeah, emotion is illegal. All art is illegal. And then Christian Bale, who's like one of the one of the enforcers who becomes good, um, discovers the underground layer where like somebody has been keeping the art. And he's got like, you know, all the all the. Yeah, you know, I, I can't
1: remember. The Mona Lisa might as well be there. Not as good as Children of Men, this movie, I'm but, sensing.
0: But I guess it has the same scene. Right. And uh, and he start he starts playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on the phonograph and you and you hear you know those opening parts of it and a single tear rolls down christian bale's cheek <laughs> <laughs> i kind i don't know I'm, I'm looking back on it fondly a, a single gin soaked
1: tear <laughs> oh cruel needless misunderstanding oh, stubborn self-willed exile from the loving breast no i don't know is it good is it's,
0: <laughs> well it's got in it. <laughs> We'll be in a world where regulators will be constantly confusing us. So no one will know what's going on. And and by the way, that kind of sounds like the world we're in right now. Um, so everyone should read 1984. It, if, you know, even if you just do the cliff notes or, or you check out the Prager video.
1: Now, of course, George Orwell is a pretty expansive topic. I'm sure we'll return to him at some point. We did talk about him already on an episode. I can't remember what the number was, but it was a Patreon episode, patreon.com slash Michael and us. It was called The Lion and the Unicorn. And there we talked about Orwell's list and a number of essays, uh, you know, My Country Left to Right, a few other famous ones.
0: We'll put a link in the show notes to that. And uh, by the way, free episode every week, five Yankee dollars a month. Month, it's a good value.
1: Since we've been talking about the various uh, interpretations of this uh, novel and the lives it continues to have in the present, I would just like to conclude by sharing something with you all that I discovered recently during some research on Orwell. We talked earlier about the uh, the CIA-financed version of Animal Farm. This isn't quite the same thing, but in some ways, I actually find it more insidious. And dare I say it, Orwellian. To this day, as far as I can tell, the most popular and widely printed edition of 1984 in the United States comes with an introduction. And that introduction quotes what is by now a very a famous and iconic line from Orwell, where he says, Every line of serious work that I have written since 1936 has been written directly or indirectly against totalitarianism. And then the quote cuts off. And you know what the next four words are? And for democratic socialism.